In our very first interview, we talk about the practice of discernment and how to know the difference between an opportunity and an assignment, how to prioritize your prayer life, while we all need to set limits when it comes to our screen time, and the four components of a meaningful Sabbath, all on today's Dreamers and Disciples. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Wade Joy, and I'm pumped about today's episode because I wanted to start incorporating some interviews into Dreamers and Disciples. And so we kick it off strong today with my very good friend, Jonathan Moynihan. He's a brilliant pastor, a brilliant thinker, and I think you're going to really love this conversation. I know I did because there's so much gold that he shares in it. So I want to get right to that interview. But first, I did want to share this short message from Tony, one of our listeners, who wrote in to say that he just listened to the difference between discipline and legalism and just wanted to say thank you. Well, thank you, Tony, for letting us know that. And I'm so glad that 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 message has resonated with so many people that, that discipline is not the same thing as legalism, that discipline is ordering your life around your priorities and your passions, whereas legalism is trying to do things to impress other people, to try to live up to some external standard, and you can't live that way. That's that's not a way that brings freedom or joy. But discipline creates space for God to heal us and for God to move in our lives. And we really cover some of that same ground in today's episode as Jonathan gives us some very practical handles on how to incorporate healthy discipline and rhythms into our prayer life, into our Sabbath practice, uh, and also into you know very practical things like our screen time. And so I'm really excited about this interview. I think you're going to love it. So let's join Jonathan Moynihan for our conversation right now. Jonathan is the lead pastor of Mosaic Christian Church right outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and just a very dear brother, um, just a great friend over the last, Mm. I guess it's been a little over a year that we've known each other. So thanks for being on the podcast today. Dude, honored, super honored, Wade, and just good to see you again. Really yes. good to chat. I think the very first like long conversation we ever had was on your podcast. Yeah, we talked briefly, got connected, and just found out we had a kindred passion for the types of things you talk about on on your platform. And then, yeah, we we I think our first convo was like ninety minutes, like 20, <laughs> 20 minutes before we even hit record. <laughs> right. We talked for an hour, then another ten minutes on the back end. But yeah, dude. Well, here's a funny story about that. Um, is when we had that conversation about a year ago as we were recording this right now in November, that was the same day that I'd had my first conversation with someone at Elevation, letting them know that I was going to step off staff. And I had this very emotional conversation. And then like 30 minutes after that, I had that interview with you. And I have no recollection of anything I said in that podcast. I don't know. It was good. I don't know if it was anything coherent because it was a massive... Uh, pivot in my life on that day. Mm. Um, but wow. what's what's interesting is you're kind of coming off of a big pivot in your life and a massive transition um, mm-hmm. as lead pastor of Mosaic. Can you talk a little bit about what this season of ministry and life looks like for you? Yeah, God's got a sense of humor, right? You know? Um, so in 2021, uh, I'd been the teaching minister at our church and been on staff for almost 10 years. My lead pastor, Carl, our founding pastor, 
um, was gone on sabbatical and I was leading a lot of things while he was gone. And during that time, I finally had the courage to admit, uh, and I think God had been leading me to this, but I finally had the courage to admit, I think I was being called to go be a lead pastor somewhere. And I love my home church. I love my lead pastor, but I knew that, you know, me stepping into a role like that was likely in my understanding, not going to occur here in Baltimore. So I started pursuing church planning. Uh, I was a part of a cohort with some pastors in very secular post-Christian cities and just learning from them over the span of several months. And throughout those several months, I had people pray over me things that really felt like prophetic, not like in a spooky fortune telling way, but in like a, I felt like they were speaking for God to me to encourage me. And a couple of those things were, hey, if God is leading you away, let him do it. That was one thing that someone prayed over me. It was actually a former campus pastor from Mars Hill under Mark Driscoll. Okay. Who, who was, he's gone through a lot of stuff, and now he pastors in San Diego. And he's just been through the evangelical industrial complex, like the church machine. Right. And he prayed over me, like, don't force this. Like, if this is of God, let him do it. Hmm. And so I started to take this slow posture of, like, discerning the times and discerning the everyday life um, you know, Henry Nowen's book, Discernment, was really, really helpful for me in that process. I love that book. Yeah, dude, so good. And um, and then I was with um, John Tyson, who's a pastor of Church of the City up in New York as part of this cohort. And I was just processing with him. I was like, hey, man, here's what I've been thinking. What do you think? And in his deep, baritone Australian accent, he was like, man, I think you need to let God do it. But sometimes I feel like God only opens doors when I get moving. So I was holding this juxtaposition of like, let him do it, but also know that there's a call to participation that I had. Right. So at that point, after about four months of just waiting for God to open the door, I decided to get moving. And I applied to lead a church plant through the Orchard Group, which is based in New York City. They, they plant in hyper dense metropolitan areas that are really unreached. So at that point, within about a month, the Orchard Group was uh, sending me to an assessment process. They were basically saying, like, if you want to plant in this part of the country, specifically in Boston, that they were going to partner with me and, you know, massive, you know, six figures several times over to plant in a major urban center. So I go to assessment. Uh, I get approved. I get the highest possible score you can get. My wife and I are like, holy crap, we're actually going to do this. We're probably going to move next year, then plant in 2024. I come back, I meet with my founding pastor, and we tell them all this. And with tears in his eyes, he goes, I say, what do you think about that timeline, Carl? And he goes, Jonathan, I think God's calling us away from Maryland, and we think all of this has been so you can take over Mosaic. And I was like, what? Plot twist. The, what? <laughs> I, my wife laughed. She thought he was kidding. And that sent us into a season of deep reflection of God, what have you been doing? Like, I thought, you know, we had grieved my best friend as our executive ministry here. All of our community is here. Our family is here. Both sets of grandparents are here. And we thought God had called us to give all that up to go fulfill the Great Commission and plant in a really difficult city where we'd never pastor more than probably 150 people because no church in downtown Boston is more than like 200 people. And, um, you know, we entered into a season of discernment where, you know, St. Ignatius of Loyola had this prayer discernment method that I learned from another mentor where you basically hold before the Father some very specific requests, asking God to affirm the direction that you sensed in the spirit that he was leading you to. And those prayer requests for me were very precise, and they were, God, would you have a, a member of our elders approach me about their passion for prayer? 
because I was deeply passionate about prayer. And if I was going to go somewhere to lead, mm. that had to be a normative of our communal expression yeah. that pr- we'd be a church, not just who prays, but is prayerful. Mm. So I was like, God, if I, I really need that if we're supposed to stay. And then the other thing I prayed was, God, if you really want us here, would you have the cools, our pastors, move away by the fall? And as you know, Wade, like pastoral transitions from lead pastor to another don't happen quickly. So a, a four-month turnaround would have been ridiculous, but it would have been a sign. Mm-hmm. Of course, God, in his ways, you know, seven weeks after I started praying that, Carl accepted a position at Southeast Christian Church working under Kyle Eidelman. And it happened the same day I was in Boston visiting to potentially plant a church. And I'll never forget being in the train station in Boston. There are these ads everywhere promoting this like massive marketing campaign. And as I go down the steps to go to the train in Boston— after my second day there, there's this massive sign that says, you're about to experience something new, visit Baltimore. Hmm. And I'm like, I didn't know Baltimore had enough money to advertise in other cities. <laughs> so why the heck is this here? And uh, about three hours after I saw that sign, I started wondering like, God, what are you doing? Carl called me and said, hey, I've accepted a position at Southeast Christian Church. And I'm going to recommend you to the board unless you tell me you don't want it. And at that moment, coupled with a bunch of other things, God bringing Carl a new opportunity that quickly, God bringing an elder to come to me and have a conversation about their passion for prayer. God met me in all those things, plus prayer and fasting and just coming to grips with, I think God had been up to this the whole time. But that is the long version of kind of how we got into this place. So most churches will have like a year long or two year or three year transition. Our church was notified in late May and I took over in mid-July. And that has been, we went from thinking we were going to be in Boston to now we get to pastor a a beautiful community that I've been a part of since we were about 200 people 10 years ago. So that's, that's the transition. You know, we kind of dove into how I discerned in the process because I know you and I are passionate about that, but. Right. And I'm glad you, you got into that because, you know, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about how to um, hold your dreams loosely before God. In, in a place of surrender and a, and a posture of being open to whatever the Father has, yeah. And and I like looking at your journey as a case study of what that can actually look like. That tension of do I take a step? Do I wait? You mm-hmm. know, praying specific prayers and asking God to move and having different people speak into your journey. I think there's so much wisdom in, in how you navigated it. I remember too, because we had walked through this together. I knew you were, That's right. You wanted to go and, and plant a church somewhere. And I remember when you called and said, hey, something crazy has happened. <laughs> I might be staying here. That's right. Um, and how sometimes those surprises from God happen as we take a step to do what we think we're supposed to do, but it's as we move that God says, well, actually, I had something else for you to do. So I remember I was getting on a train going to New York, Wade, and I hit you up and you said, when you've been seeking the Father's leadership as intently as you have, and he brings you an opportunity that you never thought would be possible, you said the phrase, you have, you must give that special attention. And you were one of those first voices where I almost like gave myself permission to like really get excited about the thing that felt safer. I felt icky because it was almost safer to stay, hmm. you know? But um, you gave me permission to be like, all right, maybe God is trying to get my attention here. I remember where I was on the platform at the BWI train station when I called you. Oh, wow. Um, we were, I remember we were driving back from Florida <laughs> when we nice. had that conversation. <laughs> um, now, what would you say, though, to the listener who, you know, they're trying to, to navigate 
you know, this passion that they have and they don't know if it's from God or not, or this, this opportunity that's before them. You know, you mentioned, you know, the, the process from St. Ignatius of Loyola. Mm -hmm. I can never say that Mm -hmm. right. Um, (laughs) But what like specific handles can you give for people in their own discernment journey? Mm. Well, the first thing that comes to my, I don't have like some pithy three point answer, uh, just kind of process. First, if you don't have a posture of listening already, it's going to be really hard to hear from God. Hmm. So if you are genuinely trying to seek the Lord's leading over major decisions in your life, and you haven't created rhythms or spaces to really sense God's leading and even listen to him in that still small voice that we see in scripture, you're going to struggle to get anything from him if you're asking him to communicate at the volume of culture. You know, the moments when there's like those big burning bush moments, I think those get written about in scripture because they're the exceptions, not the norm. Yeah. And um, a lot of people that I've learned from about discernment, you know, really challenge you to think about the mundanity of it all, the boredom of just being faithful in the right direction over a long period of time. So first I would say, you know, do you have rhythms where you can uh, let your own selfish motives come to the surface, let your own shadow come to the surface and also hold the goodness that is within you, the spirit that is within you, the, the call in your life that is within you. And do you have a place where all of that can kind of get into the mix while the promptings of God you know, impact you and, and kind of nudge you and, and prod you. There is a time where, oh, and none of this happens if you're not rooted in scripture, by the way. Uh, yeah. Like there are, there are times where going through the Lectio 365 app or, you know, reading through scripture where like the, the psalm I read that day was exactly what I needed. Um, I, I don't know why, but I never thought to read Joshua when I was contemplating transition. Mm-hmm. And when I first read Joshua 1 and that G, that God caused Joshua to be strong and courageous like seven times in the first 15 verses, something like that, I'll, it, it did it wrecked me because it was like scripture was meeting me. But I don't think that happens if I'm just trying to rush through a Bible plan while I eat my breakfast, right? Like there's a yeah. posture of listening you have to have. Um, I do think fasting is a really instrumental part. And I don't mean it. It doesn't have to mean food. Um, but... My wife and I did a season and I'm not in the middle of it now. So I don't feel like I'm like losing my treasures or anything. You know, these are just things that we did, but we did a season where every week we would pick something and it was like no TV one week, no social media one week, no fast food one week. And just having things that in your flesh you would impulsively run to just for rest or comfort or distraction, just have, just removing those things systematically over the span of several weeks just enabled you to take those little pockets and redirect yourself back to the Lord. So fasting was really, really big. Um, and then another key element is getting around people who aren't afraid to hurt your dream or kill your dream, but who speak oh. candidly. Yeah. You know, like Wade, with you and your story, I know you had courageous people who spoke candidly about what your future was, what your maximum influence for the kingdom could be. And they, they had to kill the calf of your own idol yeah. of the dream and help you do it in order for you to step into the new thing. So I had um, people along the way who I wasn't like thinking I shouldn't go plant, but there were some voices who were saying, Jonathan, I just wonder if you're actually best equipped to take over a pre-existing community. Hmm. And I didn't think anything of it. No, Mosaic was never on the table. 
But all of those voices that I did allow to say things that were confronting and even painful for me, God then brought to the surface when his ultimate assignment came. Because then it was almost like ammunition for me to determine, um, God, have you been trying to say this to me all along? And maybe in my ego or in my ambition, I was um, resistant to it. And the last thing I'll say is I had a prayer mentor from California who I randomly got to connect with at a conference. And I asked him to pray for me. And again, it was one of those moments where I felt like God was just like comforting me, encouraging me. But the prayer he said was, you know, Lord, help Jonathan discern the difference between an opportunity and an assignment. And as we grow in faith, God in his kindness, I don't think gives us those fork in the road moments that are like the sinful thing or the godly thing. It's usually between like good things and the godly thing. Like there's a thing that you're not sinning if you choose, but you are missing out on the risk and the formation that could come if you chose like the God thing. And that was a really big part of my discernment process of journaling and prayer and Mm -hmm. contemplation of, okay, is planting an opportunity or is it the assignment? You know, is mosaic the opportunity or is it the assignment? And ultimately that language was really beneficial for me. I actually really love that distinction, opportunity or assignment. I think that's a really helpful grid for people to process um, whatever they're praying through, um, through that lens. You also mentioned, you know, about it's going to be hard to go through any of this if you don't have rhythms of listening to God mm-hmm. already. I mean, that's you and I first connected over that to begin with. Our our passion for uh, contemplative prayer right. and and in Sabbath and and slowing down in right. this very hectic and crazy world. Mm-hmm. Um, what do your prayer rhythms? currently look like on an, on an average day? Um, I mean, you're, you're in ministry, you have mm-hmm. kids, your married life can be crazy. Mm-hmm. How do you make time uh, to prioritize that structure and routine? Yeah, there's a, um, I'll just tell you what I did today instead of projecting some okay. perfect picture. Um, but the principle of this is, there's a couple different things. So there's a book by a pastor who've since blown up his life, but it was a really, really good idea called too busy not to pray. And I never really got that, you know, like, you know, you're trained to work hard and stuff like prayer sometimes feels like inefficient, Mm -hmm. but the truth is uh, you are a really good leader. Sure. But you're not the Holy spirit and you may be really creative, but you're not the creator. You know, you may be really inspirational, but you are not the indwelt spirit of God that can move and shape and cut people at the bone of the marrow of who they are. So for me, prayer, um, I try to be like Moses as best I can, who knows what it is to look upon the face of God and have him call you friend, like to be, have that proximity. So prayer is my time to remind myself, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an influencer. I'm not a podcaster. I'm a child of God, deeply flawed, forgiven by grace. That is my identity. Hmm. Um, Now there are times when like my work stuff comes up and I have to like ground that. But for me, if I go more than like two days without having some solid prayer time in the morning, I just feel out of whack. My reactive patterns comes up. My compulsion for performance and people pleasing comes up. So all of that sin and toxicity within my own self kind of gets pushed down when I get to pray. So what I what I what I did this morning is um, I stayed up a little late just following the election. So I woke up at five thirty instead of five. From five thirty to six thirty, I do my prayer rhythm, which is about twenty. 15 to 20 minutes of just silent stillness, just calming myself down. Um, I say, I hold my hands open and I just say, here I am, Lord, here I am. 
you know, this morning I prayed one Psalm 31, Psalm 131, you know, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too big or awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I quiet myself like a wean child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a wean child is my soul within me. Hmm. So I, I, I have Psalms memorized so that when I don't know what to pray, I just pray that. And it's amazing what happens. And then I just check in with God of like, okay, today I feel happy. I feel tender for my wife. I love her. She's been feeling sick, so I'm tender for her. You know, I'm scared based on the hostility of the election. So God, I'm scared about that. I'm scared I'm not going to lead well. I'm scared I'm not going to have a pastoral word for people. I'm scared that I'm going to cause divisiveness when I don't intend. And then out of that, um, I opened my like my Lectio Divina hymnal book that I have where you pray through the scriptures. And I just read First Peter 1, took through some notes, read a couple quotes by C.S. Lewis about grace. And before you know it, an hour had gone by. Mm-hmm. All the while, I'm distracted by this interpersonal conflict, or I'm distracted by wanting to check my fantasy roster for fantasy football. You know, like, and I just make notes, or I say, Lord, I'm choosing to turn back to you. Rich Velotis says, every distraction is an opportunity to turn back to the cross. So you have to like anti demonize yourself for being distracted and realize there's grace for that. Yeah. So I just do that for like an hour, and that's pretty typical for me. You know, about one hour is the amount of time that I need. Sometimes it feels beautiful and robust. Sometimes it feels boring, like you're sitting with your spouse in a long car ride. Sometimes I feel deep joy and purpose, like clarity about what should I do with my life. Sometimes I just feel like a mess because I stayed up too late or I, I had too much junk food, like in Halloween or something. But that, that time in the morning, I light a candle. Um, it's usually dark in the morning. Um, I'm usually wearing sweatpants. I brush my teeth and put in my contacts so I get awake a little bit. I give myself a cup of coffee, but I don't, I almost never jump into the Bible without first taking five, 10, 15 minutes to just sit and allow whatever is within me to come to the surface. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you just spend your whole day suppressing it and distracting it to death. Right. I mean, I I think that's one of the dangers of our culture is that we are so fast paced and we are so easily distracted that we never pay attention to what is mm-hmm. actually going on in our heart. And even That's more right. importantly, what God wants to say to us. And I was I was talking to someone recently about how when you're silent before the Lord, it's this it's this interesting dichotomy because I feel like my false self comes to the surface, the, the yep. sins that I don't want to admit are there come to the surface. Yet at mm-hmm. the same time, I get a greater awareness of God's love and his grace for mm-hmm. all of that. So they come to the surface, but not in a shame-based way in a way that causes me to lean into the love of God in a new way. And I think that's a a really beautiful thing that happens with that. And I think you've internalized the grace of Jesus through maturity. So you have that going for you. But that is part of the reason why an uninitiated person is going to have all of that evil and sin and things they don't like about themselves come to the surface, but they don't have necessarily like the biblical weapons to Mm -hmm. guard themselves against shame. And that's why silence is so scary because it— you know, it is the, you know, the impure thoughts or the performance obsession or the comparison or the deep insecurities, they all come to the surface. And you, if you're, if you do it the right way, you, you don't have the weapon of distraction to keep you from just numbing it again. And so that is where, you know, I think I have to be careful because there are times when I have my time with God where I'm never even opening my Bible. It's just an mm-hmm. hour, hour, 15 minutes of just centeredness and quiet. But I've internalized the gospel by memorizing scripture, you know, Psalm 19, 
The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. Like I believe that. So scripture revives my soul. But to someone who's trying to imitate the contemplative rhythms of Jesus without being grounded in the words of Christ, I think that's where things can go sideways. I think that's a really crucial distinction that contemplative silence and solitude apart from the word of God will not lead you to the right place. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to be anchored in, in God's word. Do you have any like fixed prayer throughout the day? Yeah, I'm working on it. So I try to um, pray through Psalm 23 in the middle of my day. Um, I memorize like the old time, like maybe it's King James Version. So, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, all that stuff. And it's like, I'm trying to memorize like the NLT. It's a little bit more conversational Mm -hmm. um, or the NASB version, but I do that. And then... More times than not, I don't do this. So let's be clear, you know, for when my <laughs> wife listens, she knows I'm being authentic. At the end, after the kids go to bed, my wife and I try to do just a short prayer of examine where we ask God, where were you throughout the day? Where were we ignorant maybe to how you were at work? You know, what do we need to confess for the day and who do we need to contend for? And it's often each other. You know, we have three children under the age of five. So it's just contending for one another to be gracious. Um, And, you know, one of the cool things as a married couple is like afterwards, you feel so close to each other. It's almost like a little bit of a romantic connection or spiritual connection within just a few minutes. But that is not frequent yet. We are, you know, we've talked, I did a whole teaching with our staff on rule of life and that's, you know, praying the offices of morning, midday and evening prayer were basically how the church kept time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are trying to work on that, but the evening prayer is tough because when the sink is full and the kids' toys are everywhere and they just went to bed, all I want to do is, you know, eat some Halloween candy and put on the office or something. So it's it's hit right. us right now, but that's what we aim for. Well, one thing that's helped us with evening prayer, and, and I'm like you, we, my wife and I are not consistent about this every <laughs> night. But when Lectio 365 added the evening component, um, and it kind of oh, yeah, right. and it walks you through a prayer of examine, that's been a good thing for us to go through as well. I need to do that more. That's good advice. What, what would you say for the person who hears us talking about praying for an hour, and they're like, <laughs> "Yeah, whatever." Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a professional Christian. Oh, I can't do dude. that. Well, I would say, me too, man. That was me. <laughs> I, I, for my entire life. I always felt guilt about how bad I was at spiritual disciplines. Like I just always felt like I was never going to get there. And so one, I would just say, Hey, I get it. I know what it's like to beat yourself up. And God doesn't want you to beat yourself up. He just wants you. He wants Mm -hmm. presence with you. Um, The two things that helped me were one coming to grips with what prayer is. It's not asking God for things. It's just being in his presence. And, um, You know, having children, I think, is the ultimate life hack of Christianity because, like, my daughter constantly wants to show me, like, her pictures and what she built and all those things. And I'm like, just look at me. Like, look me in the eye Mm -hmm. and smile at me and tell me about your day. That's all I want. And there is that, like, hokey, Christian-y answer of prayer is just being completely authentic and vulnerable with God about how you're doing. And obviously, that a lot of that for me was not obviously, but... Unfortunately, a lot of that was birthed from pain and stuff like that. You and I have talked about weight offline. But so just 
putting down your preconceived notions of what prayer has to be and just realize it's a conversation like God is a person. He put on flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, he is near. Um, the fact that he introduces himself as Yahweh in Exodus 34 and that he has a name, not just a title, but a name, mm-hmm. you know, that shows he wants to be known. So that's really important. But the other thing that's helped me get there of doing a long time is breaking it up into spurts and mm-hmm. creating rhythms or movements throughout the prayer. Because I'm pretty confident if I got you in a room and I was like, let's pray for an hour, nobody would want to come. But if I give you like 10 minutes to just think about what you're grateful for, and then maybe 15 to think of all the people in your life who are hurting, and all you do is think about them, and then another 15 to actually pray over those things, and then another 10 to think about scriptures that come to mind that you could pray over that person, mm-hmm. I just actually put you at like 75 minutes, you know, and yeah. it, there's been a productivity to it that is helpful. And I think as you go throughout it, you become less and less dependent on the activity and you learn how to just be present. But if you were to watch me, I wouldn't just look like a monk sitting there, you know, for an hour. It'd be some time of breathing slowly and activating my body. And then a time of staring at a candle and just focusing or praying through a Psalm. Um, You know, I memorize Psalms and then I forget them and I go back and I try to memorize them again. Um, And then you know, contending prayer is always the easiest to go to because you're praying for other people. But if you do that reactionarily or whatever the phrase is, just like sort of on autopilot, mm-hmm. I think that's where you just, it feels like another chore instead of being present. I don't know if that resonates at all, but that's what no, comes it, to mind. It does. It's, and honestly, that's, you know, two years ago, I would have laughed at you if you told me I could pray for an hour. Um, yeah. <laughs> but now that's part of my regular prayer rhythms in the morning. And it's exactly what you just said. It's, it's breaking it up into movements. And there's there's the time of silence. There's the time of journaling. There's the mm-hmm. time, time of, of going through scripture and praying through that. And before you know it, sometimes the hour has gone. And yes, then there are the days when, like you said, it moves very, very slowly. Um, but the fact I, that Jesus taught like with the table illustration a uh, lot, um, you know, meeting with people at the table, introducing communion over the table. It's almost like if I told you you were going to go have like a four-hour dining experience, you'd be like, how the heck is that going to happen? But then you realize it's like a seven-course meal. And there's all yeah, of these I movements and all of this. And you'll, you would never get bored because there's always something new that keeps you going. And that's the illustration that comes to mind. Yeah, that's a beautiful picture. Uh, I love that. Also, when we're talking about fixed prayer, um, I just finished reading... Uh, Pray like monks, live like fools. Um, And in that, uh, Tyler, the the author, he he advocates for, you know, if you want to start somewhere in the morning, start by praying the Lord's Prayer. And in whatever your midday prayer is, make that your time of interceding or contending, like you've said, for other people. Mm -hmm. And then in the evening, make that your time for gratitude. And if you, you can give each of those a focus, it all of a sudden becomes way more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, sometimes taking these massive things that see, feel so far out of reach and breaking them down into manageable steps and rhythms really helps you begin to at least take the first step into it. Yeah. And Dallas Willard does a, um, a series of teachings on the Lord's prayer and even mm-hmm. breaking down the rhythms of the Lord's prayer of, um, you know, just, I wouldn't even tell you what it, the rhythms are. I would encourage you to go read the Lord's prayer and try to discern and almost give headlines to what is this sentence? Is it praise? Is it 
request? Is it confession? Is it contending? Like each of those headlines or themes that you see from the Lord's Prayer then equip you with like, okay, I can go through those rhythms. And even if you only spend two minutes on each, you might end up at a 20-minute prayer, which is a huge step for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's all baby steps. Like I, I started in 2017, I started this mm-hmm. journey. I would go outside with a cup of coffee and sit outside in silence for three minutes. I had a timer on the other side of my glass sliding glass door, and that was all I could muster. And I remember that silence would go with me the rest of the day. And I just became addicted to it, mm-hmm. like in a beautiful way. But that's where I started. So I don't want anyone to be discouraged if, you know, they can't go more than two minutes of just sitting quietly. Um, that's normal, man. You've been conditioned to be that distracted. You know, millennials and Gen Z have an attention span that's less than a goldfish. Some sociologists point out like a goldfish can stare that's... at something longer than you and I are going to stand at something, which is spooky. Well, I'm glad you went there because I do want to make sure we at least talk a little bit about how to just adopt a slower lifestyle just in general and be more present. Um, Mm. And a lot of that is that war against technology and all the things that are competing for our attention. Yeah. As you look at your own life and the church that you lead, you know, and I know you just took your staff, like you said, through a rule of life. What boundaries Mm -hmm. do you set? Guardrails do you set to help you manage technology well, to help you manage your presence well? Do you have any wisdom there? Um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've done a couple things. I, it always changes. I'm always tinkering because I'm always weaseling my way into unhealthy, you know, phone consumption or digital consumption. You know, I try to like this morning I woke up and I was really intrigued to see what happened with the election results, but I felt God be like, don't touch your phone for an hour, like be awake for one hour before you look. And that's pretty much a rule that I try to do. Mm-hmm. Um, don't make it the first. I have my my phone is in my bathroom. So I don't go to sleep with it next to my bed. And the alarm goes off in the bathroom. I have to get up and go get it. So I don't look up and just like scroll on my phone. Um, so I'd make it the not first thing I look at. I try to set a bedtime for my phone at the end of the day where like after a certain time, I, I put it away and put it to bed the same way you would a kid. Obviously, last night I didn't because the midterm elections, whenever this gets publicize, you'll know that we're talking whenever we are. Um, you know, I have a 15 minute block on Instagram. So after 15 minutes, it automatically shuts off and I have to go like put in a pin. The apps that I'm most likely to waste time on are actually not on my phone. I have to go search them on the search tab just to make it harder for myself to get there. Um, you know, we don't, you really touch our phones much on the Sabbath, which is something we're really trying to make a priority. And then another rule um, that I've been good at sometimes and other times bad at is I try to make it a rule to only do one screen at a time. Hmm. Um, I think you'd be shocked at how often you're staring at multiple screens at one time, like having your phone out while you're doing something on the computer or working on your computer while the TV's on or scrolling on your phone while you're watching the game. And like that level of just manic distraction is conditioning your brain to want something that is completely unrealistic. And surely the still quiet presence of God is not going to compete with our immediate gratification conditioning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are a couple from a, a technological standpoint for rule of life stuff. You know, I had a, a staff member today come up to me and he, and he was like, Hey, I've been really discouraged. I've been trying to run after rule of life and having what we call digital hygiene. And He's like, I'm really frustrated. Can you make a new pin on my phone 
so that when my phone locks me out from social media, I can't log in until the next day. Or if I really need it, I have to come to you and have you rewire it. And it's someone who I have close proximity with, so it works. And we live in the same neighborhood. But he made it so someone not even in his own home has access to the pin on his phone so he can't cheat the system. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's I, I don't have games on my phone at all. Um, I, I just tend to be like, I don't think I'm an addicted person, an addictive personality, but I know if I have games on my phone, I'm going to be an absent father. I'm going to be an absent spouse. I'm going to be distracted at work. I'm going to be a lazy pastor. So those are a couple of things that come to mind, yeah. but they're just, those are, those are deeply spiritual. They're just, we are not, it comes from believing we are not independent, autonomous, brilliant people who are immune to the multi-billion dollar industry of social media. You know, we are, David Foster Wallace has that story of two swit, two fish swimming in the water and an older fish swims by and the older fish goes, hey, how's the water? And the younger fish go, what the heck is water? Because the younger fish don't realize they're fish. They're just a natural product of the environment. And it's like, we have to come to grips with that process of counterformation. How are, how are we being conformed by these devices so that we can begin the process of counterformation so that we can step into the transformation that occurs when we actually step back from the device. So all of those things I just listed feel super, super simple, but they're my sad attempt to counterform myself out of the ways I have already been formed by the world. Yeah. I've always really admired that about you too, your, your self-awareness and then willingness to put those practices into place that protect your your attention, your awareness, and your presence um, on what's most important. And Thanks, I remember you had a uh, episode of your podcast, uh, The White Flag, which I'll talk about in a moment, which is amazing, but where you talked about Wordle in the morning and how that... Dude, <laughs> yes. Um, and I think I, I was struggling with the same thing at that time. Like, I didn't want to touch my phone for an hour, but I really wanted to play Wordle and get my yeah. score in before the rest of the family <laughs> got their score in. Um, yeah, but... Um, I've always really been challenged by your commitment to giving your best attention to the right priorities. Mm, that's um, a good way to put it. And even the way you just, when you were talking about one screen at a time, I'm like, okay, yes, that's, that's a new, mm. a new rule for me because that second yeah. screen can, can sneak in. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And if I, I had someone remind me, they actually didn't, it just came out of the conversation. Like it felt like God brought both of us to this place. But my deep desire for my children to reject the addictive tendencies of social media is actually being established now by what they see in my behavior. Hmm. So by me wanting them to just never want to be on their phone and want to go outside and read books, it's like, what example am I setting right now so they would be independent of this machine of addiction? And that gives me greater conviction and purpose to make good decisions. Now I'm not perfect. You know, like my kids seem, my, my daughters will clean up toys. I'm like, dad, you can go. They, they said, dad, we'll clean up. You sit down and play on your phone. And I was like, so grossed out by that. Like they projected that me resting meant I had to be on my phone. Um, did it change my behavior that day? No, I still got out my uh -huh. phone. You know, th th my kids are all this, all the data from Jonathan Haidt. Um, he's a professor at NYU about how our phones are, are harming children, especially teenage girls specifically. Like, you know, there's, there's even secular people who are coming around to this 
which I think only proves the rhythms of Jesus that you and I are so passionate about. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to ask you, cause, and we will probably close with this, but I think it's okay. an important one. Um, you mentioned Sabbath and, mm-hmm. and I think Sabbath is one of those practices for me that I honestly never took seriously until mm-hmm. the last couple of years. It was basically just a day off for me, mm-hmm. but there was no intentionality to it. There was no focus to it. Um, can you talk about not just what Sabbath looks like, but why it's important? Um, mm. cause I think even as you're talking about the counterformation, um, with technology and everything, I think there's something so countercultural to Sabbath that is yeah. vital for our souls. Yeah. I'm pulling up my phone cause I've got a couple of different things here saved just about Sabbath that I think are just so beautiful. You know, the, the two biggest things that come to mind are when you realize God didn't need a break when he introduced the Sabbath, it shows what his purpose was for it. And his rest came right after he created humanity. And so it was from this presence with people that the rest of human history began. And so he didn't like take a break after creating because he was tired. He made sure that the first, you know, thematically of Genesis, you know, and I'm not reading Genesis as historical literature as you and I would view history, but as like thematic Mm -hmm. history of God and creation. But the first 24 hour span with his people that he created, God rested to be present with them. So what that means for us is that we don't operate for rest or toward rest. We operate from rest. So the Sabbath is not a place that you sprint to and then crash. It is a thing that you step into, you are filled up from, and then you step into your week with a different level of presence and energy. And that was really big for me um, about why it mattered of like, oh, I am actually going to be more present as a leader more available as a husband and as a father, if I make sure that I am pruning from my life on this day so that I can step into it more fully after that. Because it's, you know, from rest that I lead and serve and minister well, not for it. Um, your question was, why does it matter? Is that right? Yeah, why, why, why is it so important? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, other th- the other big thing that comes to mind is Sabbath is a weekly concession that you are not the God of the universe. If you are unwilling to take a day of rest, what evidence is there that you actually don't believe you're in charge of all things? That's the question I'd hold to you. And you and I know operating in high level organizations um, and being motivated and inspired by people who are just killing it. You know, the God complex comes online very quickly When you ignore the Sabbath over and over, all the results are about you. They're all indicative of your identity and your purpose and your value. And over time, you eliminate the very thing that God gifted us with to draw us back into the beautiful place of identity. And we put ourselves on the throne of our lives when we ignore the Sabbath. So that's the big thing for me, too, is because there are, I mean, you know, wait, there's all these moments where you get a quick text or you you get, you know, I don't have notifications on my phone besides text messaging, but I know that there's emails. I know there's something about mm-hmm. Sunday. I know, uh, you know, there's, there's someone who's hurting that if I just, you know, had my phone on do not disturb, maybe I'd see their missed call. But it's a reminder of, okay, God, I'm trusting you. I'm proving that you are good and trustworthy. So I'm going to do what you've told me to, even when I think it actually might harm my own personal ambition for something. Yeah. And, you know, launching a podcast, some of your good ideas are going to come on the Sabbath. 
So I've even had to be careful of, there's been times where I choose to not write it down because I'm like, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'm going to trust that you're going to bring it to mind tomorrow. Hmm. And sometimes I forget and that's okay. Yeah. You know, like so, um, a phrase that comes to mind from someone that they, they were mentoring me on something else, but they said, your, your sermons may be 1% less good, but you'll be 1% better as the person to deliver it because you were faithful to God's word. Oh, wow. I love that. So it's like, so it's like, man, my, my pastoring efficacy might actually go down slightly, but the quality of my shepherding heart has increased because I was true to the real shepherd. Yeah. That's powerful. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's so true. It's willing to, to break the idol of productivity in your life and realize, you know, and, and to stop believing that you are what you produce. And yes. that your identity is rooted in something and someone far deeper and more important that brings you peace. Uh, That's right. So yeah, so could you give somebody who doesn't, they've never really prioritized Sabbath, like where do they start? Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's four Ps that I kind of go off of when I teach people on this. Um, I'll just go through them real quick. It's pause, praise, play, and prep. So number one, first part of Sabbath is pause. Don't work. Like, do not work. Don't, I, I even say don't do chores if you can, but just pause your life. Um, don't be running around. Don't do all the normal rhythms. Like, slow down. I still wake up and stuff, but I'm not, like, hurrying to go do stuff. You know, pause. It, it, you know, um, cease your work is essentially what the Jews did. They would make sure they stopped working. So that's what pause is. Praise is um, just give yourself some extended time to connect with God. That could be prayer. That could be listening to worship music. You know, you can go for a walk or like go do a prayer time and just walk and talk to God. But you don't have time to do that unless you pause and stop. So it's pause, then praise. Or uh, the next one is play. You know, part of the, the Hebrew word for Sabbath is to delight, a day of delight where you enjoy creation. I know some pastors who like eat massive amounts of cookies and ice cream with their kids just to celebrate the gift of creation. They don't do that every day, but they do it on the Sabbath. And then the fourth point, pause, praise, play. Last one is prep. In Hebrew culture, Friday was the day of preparation because you have to prepare to not work. You have to prepare to pause and praise God uh, and enjoy things, in our, especially in our modern world, which makes it even cooler that God in his wisdom had Jesus be crucified on our behalf on a day of preparation to hmm. prepare for the, you know, justification and sanctification of all people who call in the name of Jesus. Like that happened on the day of prep. So you have to prepare for it. So I would, I would encourage people with the brutal reality that you will not have a good Sabbath unless you prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And we have a mutual friend, Wade, who even will text me from time to time on, on his uh, day before Sabbath. He's vacuuming the house and he's like doing dishes and doing laundry so that on his Sabbath day, he literally gets to do nothing but yeah. watch Michael Jordan documentaries and play with his <laughs> kids and go to the gym, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but if you don't prep, it's not going to happen. And so my Sabbaths, the quality of them, how well do I relax? How well do I delight? How well am I present with God? It's almost always indicative of how well I prepared the day before. And that's true for your quiet times. You know, a good morning with God begins with a wise evening tonight. Um, but that prep element is the most overlooked one. And it's the one that will leave you confused and frustrated if you don't do, but you keep trying to have a day of pause because you haven't prepared for it. Yeah. 
But I, I, I think those are such helpful handles. Pause, praise, play, and prep. I'm, yep. I'm gonna. You, you have such a gift of taking <laughs> complex ideas and, and breaking them down into such manageable, inviting handles and steps for people Thanks, so man. they don't feel as scary anymore. So um, Thanks, man. I could talk to you for another hour, but I know yeah. we, we got to wrap this up, but thank you for just for sharing your wisdom mm-hmm. um, on the podcast. And, and I'm grateful for your friendship. I you also too, know that people are going to want to know how they can keep up with you. I mentioned the white flag podcast, which is more of you sharing about topics just like this. Mm-hmm. Um, where else can people find you if they want to to follow your journey? Um, biggest two platforms would probably just be uh, my Instagram, you know, Jonathan.Moynihan, M-O-Y-N-I-H-A-N. Uh, I like to post random stuff sometimes, and then I don't do anything for a month because I'm, I feel like I'm on my phone too much, but you can do that. <laughs> and then my website, um, it's just sort of like the lead pastor page on our, our church's page, but JonathanMoynihan.com. You can always contact me there if you had a question or you know, I try to respond to everybody that comes in with like a, here's some books that helped me, or here's an episode I did. But, you know, people like you, Wade, who've given me access to them that I didn't think I deserved, you know, all of the opportunities God has brought to me have come through handshakes and just people that God has brought into my life. And so I want to be that handshake for other people as they grow. And I know you and I both, our heart is to be a guide, not an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, so in any ways that I can support, you know, Jonathan.Moynihan on Instagram or JonathanMoynihan.com. Awesome. Well, you're a gift, my friend. Thank you for being with us today. Bro, honored by you, Wade. Thanks for having me, brother. I hope you all were as blessed by that conversation as I was. If you enjoyed it, please share it with someone else and leave a review as well. That helps more people discover the podcast. And if you want to begin to take steps towards growing in your prayer life or in your practice of Sabbath, you can get my free ebook, Seven Rhythms to Renew the Health of Your Soul at wayjoy.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. As well as in the show notes, you can find all the different ways you can stay connected with Jonathan Moynihan. And so thanks for joining us for today's episode. And I can't wait to see you back here next week on Dreamers and Disciples. Thank you.